radio transmission by me, Donald Dean. Make me an island. You're very welcome to Make Me an Island Live. It's uh, brilliant to see you here. Um, uh, the reason this photograph is here is that tonight's show, which is um, a bank holiday sound Make Me an Island special, is dedicated to Tony McMahon. And um, so Tony McMahon um, is uh, from County Clare, was from County Clare, and uh, as well as being a master musician, accordion uh, box player, uh, he also made, uh, personally speaking, and culturally speaking in Irish terms, some of the most important uh, documentaries on traditional music. Uh, the richness of the archive in RTE is uh, largely uh, attributable to Tony McMahon. Um, and as well as all that, uh, as I said, he was a master uh, box player. <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to start by reading something uh, about an album uh, which I wrote about uh, a while back. And the album was recorded in a place called Knocknagree, uh, which is a village very close to where I come from. And um, so uh, I, last week here, uh, just up the, uh, the road, down the road, around the corner in, uh, at the National Concert Hall, um, there was a, a conversation. I was very lucky uh, to have a conversation with um, Martin Hayes. And uh, so he's just written a book called Shared Notes. And in it, uh, Tony McMahon uh, looms very large indeed. Um, so he he told me about a conversation that he had with uh, Tony McMahon when, when Martin Hayes was 14 years old and he was playing at a dance in East Clare and uh, uh, there was, uh, like the place I'm from, Slieve Lucre, uh, East Clare has a reputation where the music and dance are kind of intertwined and uh, so there were set dancers there and Tony McMahon witnessed this amazing amalgamation of sound that happened between the Tulla uh, junior band and the set dancers. And uh, a number of months later, he came to Knocknagree and he recorded the album that I wrote this piece about. And uh, in my own journey through sound, what I discovered, of course, is that the, the reason the recording is so groundbreaking, and by groundbreaking, I mean literally ground-shaking, groundbreaking. Um, but the reason is that Tony McMahon, as well as the music of Tony McMahon and Noel Hill, it was Tony McMahon recorded the thing, uh, so it sounds absolutely wonderful. Uh, while I uh, get the code on the phone of Louise's phone, I should tell you that uh, I did say to uh, Noel Hill did about making a mountain out of a Noel Hill, but I, obviously I didn't come up with that joke, as he told me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Perched high on a hill on the red side of the North Kerry, North Cork, ooh, East Kerry border, the village of Knocknagree is a suitably lofty peak for the cultural capital of Slivruka to rest. I wailed, I wild away a good few childhood hours gazing up at the place. On clear nights, I could see the, the streetlights shining from my bedroom window five miles downhill on the green and gold side of the tracks in Rathmore. Not only were the shimmering lights visible, but occasionally sound waves from there would make it to my window too. By some miracle of science, the music at carnival time would echo all the way across the Blackwater Valley to reach my curious ears. Hearing music on the radio was one thing, but when it came from the hilltops on summer nights, it felt like a special kind of magic. That's what piqued my curiosity. 
There was a hill to be climbed. I did say streetlights, but there aren't so many streets as one big village green or fair field. Before the advent of the modern cattle mart, it was the venue for one of the largest livestock fairs in Munster. Everywhere there were ghostly signs that the the village's previous life was a bustling one. Word was that there was once 17 public houses on the square. There are a few left now, but the one whose loss is most, most lamented is Dan Connell's. That was the source of the river of sound that flowed all the way to my door. Schlievelukra's unique brand of traditional music was once described by its proprietor as a state of mind. He knew what he was talking about. It's a part of the world where the music is inextricably linked to the dance. The style of polka music that fuels the fire in the area has a particular tempo. The faster the rhythm, the better. Dan O'Connell was at his happiest when his floor was taking a pounding. I was lucky enough to witness the room spinning on such nights. It was my introduction to dance music, a baptism of fire. Tony McMahon, or yesterday, Gerevan Anam Dilish. Please welcome my first guest, Louise Mulcahy. <laughs> um, so, we're looking at a picture of Tony McMahon here, and um, one of the things that Martin said, Martin Hayes said about him, was that his way of playing and, and that open 
sort of uh, style of his um, was really passed on from his hero, which, which was Joe Cooley. And again, these are things that I'm learning, but like, what's really clear is that he felt that he was really passing on, you know, uh, what Joe Cooley gave to him. I, my life was changed hearing Tony McMahon in my kitchen. You actually had him in your kitchen in Abbey Field, Louise. That's right. Well, I suppose this has been an incredibly poignant week um, for Irish Shisha music. And we remember Tony Ariestig Reva Anam uh, tonight. And I think it's very fitting uh, and a lovely tribute uh, to have this programme for, for Tony. So thanks so much for having me as part of it. I th yeah, I think, I think that the important thing is that there was two things happening with him. And he was a genius on both levels. Yeah. There was the music uh, and then there was his appreciation for the music. The whole thing about Make Me an Island is... Um, I think it's about the presentation of music. Music is everywhere, but it's ubiquitous. But I think that it's, it's not served well by uh, not being contextualized. And he, as well as being making the music so beautifully, he had the ability to see it from the other side. And, and if we're doing anything or attempting to do, attempting to do anything, it's to honor that same um, you know, belief in the power of it and in how, uh, yeah, the preservation and promotion of it. Um, tell me about sort of being in those situations where in your house in Abbey Field, um, the likes of Tony McMahon would pass through, right? So, so that wasn't abnormal for him to... Absolutely not. And I think it's something that I, I treasure and uh, so many incredible moments in, at home in Abbey Field in County Limerick. And of course, my father, a well-known accordion player, Mick Mulcahy, had these incredible friends uh, that regularly visited if they were performing in Kerry or they were performing in Knocknagree or they were performing in Clare, um, often our paths that would cross and they would call in for a cup of tea. But certainly magical moments in the kitchen at home as, as children growing up. And like when you look at the, that photograph encapsulates and captures the spirit of Tony McMahon yeah. so well. This is what I remember in the kitchen as a child growing up. Uh, he would arrive in and his first thing he'd say was, hello, crater. That's the first <laughs> salute we would get his children and then he would sit down and, and we would chat and of course my father a great friend and of course um loved the, the playing of joe cooley as well so they united in the stories about joe cooley and that was something that we treasured as children it was passed on to us um and so it was nearly like uh you know through the veins, really, we had it from yeah. uh, from the cot, really. Um, you had this drip. <laughs> we had this, absolutely. Um, I, I think Martin Hayes puts it really well when he, he puts it all really well. But he, he, he talks about this doctrine of soulfulness that, that only gets passed really through people. So the old system of spending time together, playing tunes and, and connecting in that way. And, and as you say, sort of passing on what they learned from the previous generation. Um, I mean, that seems, that's what it's all about, right? For sure. I think that the lineage of the music and the history of the music and to be able to connect that, of course, music will evolve, um, new projects will emerge, but I think to have that foundation and the roots um, of the music and to understand where the tradition has come from is something that's really important. Uh, it's nearly like the birth cert, uh, you know, to go right back to find out the foundations of this music. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to move through one's life knowing that, um, but I think that's something which I was incredibly lucky as a child was that I had that from day one really but then it was consolidated with these incredible visitors to the house yeah. and this live music as we all have missed so much over the last year and a half it's, it, you just can't beat that um, I suppose filtration yeah. uh, you know yeah. when you're when you're there in front of the, the master. Absolutely and, and another thing that comes across from Martin's book is just how like the, the canon of music that it's really a music that's experienced and maybe sometimes that's 
the epitome of it is when you experience it. And sometimes some of the great players down through time weren't really you know, recorded at their best simply because it was a different thing being recorded to what would happen in those settings. Um, so it's just amazing to be talking to somebody who was in that river of sand. Uh, uh, so maybe for Tony, Louise, a very, a tune that's, uh, I guess, associated with him. And uh, there's a wonderful clip of him talking about this. And I think it should be said that, you know, we were both at his uh, uh, funeral service at the weekend, lucky enough to be there, and um, where there was a collection of, um, you know, just, I mean, giants of Irish music and poetry uh, paying their respects. Um, but I think um, in there is something like that that is so precious in terms of uh, the man's memory and, and in terms of his contribution. The reason we're here talking today is because of his commitment to that. But Portnabuki was something that, you know, he could say divisive things, obviously, and he had that ability to be, to, you know... Uh, but I think it was that thing that, that those uh, sort of the push and the pull between those two sides, he was very honest about that. And I find that people who are able to tell you about those experiences, it's so valuable. And later in life, he, he definitely, you know, uh, very candidly spoke about his struggles. Uh, but really, the commitment to the feeling of the music was everything. So uh, Portnabuki is the one, I suppose, I've heard, uh, when I heard the news about his passing, I was talking to my friends in France, uh, some of whom are here tonight, um, and uh, while I was on uh, the, uh, the phone, I heard uh, Brendan Begley playing Portnabuki, and I was reminded of his story about playing it on a boat where six whales popped out of the water. They were, yeah, you know that story? <laughs> but obviously we're dealing with a kind of particular type of magic with this particular tune, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's an iconic slow air and it's something Tony, um, when I heard him playing and when I listened to his recordings of him, uh, he, he was able to, to, just that sheer emotional intensity that reverberated from the sound of the reeds and he was able to capture that um, magic and essence of the, of the piece, of the tune, of the slow air. Um, and it was just incredibly moving and incredibly beautiful. Um, and I think the slow air goes right back to the 1800s where you mentioned the whales, the sound of the whales. And initially they thought... Um, Tomasa Dalek went out and initially they thought that it was um, the sound of the fairies. But years later, uh, tying in, I suppose, to the modern day um, story you just mentioned, is that they actually realised it was the, the sound of the humpback whale reverberating through the hull of the oh, boat. Right. From Blasco, right. Yeah, so we have two, um, I suppose, two paths, on, uh, two roads with the story. Yeah. Um, but certainly, Tony McMahon playing Port Nabuki is an iconic piece of music. Yeah. Well, I think it would be fitting if you play it for him. So, um, if you don't mind, Louise. Of course, I'd play it in honour uh, of the great Tony O'Mahan, or Yeshte Grevana.
Um, that's exactly, uh, exactly what the doctor ordered uh, for Tony McMahon, Portnabuki, uh, Louise Mulcahy. Um, so tonight, um, you may have already noticed, and just in case I hear somebody heckling from the audience, I am channeling 1% Tuberty again. Um, so if it's a little bit too much, I'll dial it back. Uh, so um, what I mean is we're going to have um, a, a few different things happening in a variety show style tonight. Um, so for now, um, I'm going to continue talking to Louise because there's a project that I want you to talk to us about, Louise, which is really phenomenal. You've made a, a documentary about... Uh, it's called Manana Peeb, and it's about women in piping in Ireland. And uh, I'm going to just change up the slide there. So, <laughs> the optics. Um, so, um, this wonderful documentary is yet to be seen. I feel very lucky to have seen it. And, and, and I feel uh, very excited for, for everybody who will see it. Um, I suppose, first of all, Louise, like in terms of your own journey with piping, um, did it feel strange growing up or, or how was it growing up when you looked around and, and there weren't that many girls playing or, or how, how was it for you in that sense? Sure. Well, I think coming from a musical household, yeah. um, it was something that we never really thought about or ne was never really an issue. And even from choice of instruments, um, I suppose particularly at that time, it was obvious that um, it was, uh, uh, women were in the minority really within the piping tradition, uh, but certainly it was never a factor in the reason I chose the instrument or, you know, it was just really the love and the, and the passion and uh, I suppose it was the huge attraction to the sound of the instrument, yeah. the power of it. And we'll talk about that in a while. Sure. But the thing is, right, so, but there was never this feeling of like, there was no barrier as such being a girl. No barrier, really. Pipe. I mean, we had a huge... Um, I suppose, uh, a fantastic uh, range of musicians coming to the house. Um, and a lot of those would, have, in hindsight, a lot of those would have been male musicians. Yeah. Um, but you never kind of thought about that, really? No, we really just loved them coming to the house yeah. and sitting down in the kitchen and hearing the, the performances and the, the stories and the tunes. And it was something, I think, from a very early age that my father really encouraged was that conversation around traditional Irish traditional music and the history. But it was never something which he singled out as being, you know, or singled out that women were in the minority. It wasn't a conversation. Yeah that we had really yeah. um, but I do recall having it on my uh, 13th birthday getting a present of the Irish Minstrels and Musicians uh, book which was published um, around 1913 by the great Captain Francis O'Neill mm -hmm. and within that uh, book it was obvious um, a number of musicians Irish music musicians of that time were profiled and I suppose it is a landmark publication because it documents those musicians um, at the 19th um, century and uh, 20th century um, and if we look at the photographs um, a lot of those are, are of uh, male performers. And so there were very few women uh, profiled in the publication. Yeah. Um, and there was some iconic photographs, the, we'll see the next one, uh, where we just see one woman centre with a set of villain pipes. Yeah. And we see, you know, a heavy, heavily male contingent of pipers surrounding her. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, but in that book, there was a fleeting mention of a couple of women. There were. There were there, Kitty Handley, if we go right back to the... In, in, 18, from Limerick, right? From Limerick, that's right. And she started playing on the death of her husband out of dire necessity. And that's what's mentioned in the book, but no profile, no mention of what has happened to her after that. Um, and there was Nance, or Kitty, or Kitty Handley from Limerick and Nance the Piper from uh, Castle Lines in Cork. And again, the similar situation. We see a profile on the male performers, but we see very little information about these women. Yeah. Um, and so that I set upon a journey that 
stood out for me in the publication, what happened to them, where did they continue their career, you know, all the questions a researcher would ask or someone who was passionate about the, the instrument. And that started when you noticed it first, but when did you, the concerted effort to the research start, Louise? Yeah, about five years ago, six years ago maybe. Um, yeah. It's something I've been gathering over the years and any articles or anything like that I, I saw that was of interest, I would have kept, you know, uh, yeah. together. Um, but what was obvious to me was the questions I asked, nobody had the answers for. Mm. They weren't in the archives and the Pipers didn't know the answers. Um, and often there were photographs, um, but no identity or no name attached to the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the journey and the quest to find out more, um, I think it's important um, you know, for the, the, the preservation of the piping tradition to have a complete story about who these, what happened to them. Mm. Um, and for that, for me, to give those women a voice, they didn't have a voice um, and they certainly weren't documented. Um, yeah, the space just wasn't there. No. So look, come along to this amazing picture. Yeah. Uh, and this is Anna Barry, right? Who set the, <laughs> the cat among the pigeons in what year, 1901? Absolutely, so this is 1901 at the Feshkjol in Dublin. And we see uh, the elegant dress, um, and what we also see are the um, the gentlemen uh, so, so some, surrounding like, her. Some sighted and number of them blind here at the Absolutely. front. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And what we, of course, she sent the media into a frenzy um, when she appeared at the piping competition. Uh, there are articles, and one of them, the quotations from the day uh, said, was reported in the paper, and it said, uh, she was like a dove amongst a flock of owl fro- frowsy crows. <laughs> <laughs> Not very complimentary of the gentleman, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, but then we were able to trace census records of her, and in, in this photograph, she was probably around 16 years of age. Um, and in the census record, it says that she, you know, it, what, what we can read between the lines that she would have come from a musical family. Yeah, in um, Cork, right? That's right. Because that's, the pattern is, mm-hmm. it's a Cork-based thing in, in those early, the heyday, which was kind of the beginning from here. Yeah. So, uh, so and and so the records, was there any records in terms of the fish killed? How did she get on or was it, was yeah, it just? Yeah, she was placed in the competitions and um, when we look at it, we see that she, on that, that time she was a teacher. So she was 16 uh, and in the sec- sec- census record, it registers her as a teacher at that particular time. So that sparks on a whole other question about, yeah. you know, the age she was and, um, and that is you know, propelled me into other research work in relation to that. But what we see about her was that she inspired a number of women at that time, 1901, to take up the pipes. Yeah, and so we get a lot of... So this is 1913, right? So this is 1913, and uh, again, they're, they're incredible photographs, and they really spark interest when you, when you see them. Um, and there's so many questions you could ask around this. Um, but we see, this is Mrs. Margaret Murphy, and Mrs. Margaret Murphy uh, was the first uh, woman to win the piping competition. Um, in 1914, but she's rather interesting in so far as uh, she was born in Limerick um, in 1893, and she uh, was from Thomangate in Limerick. But she married a very wealthy building contractor, and they were able to bring a tutor, um, Riley uh, from Dromore in County Galway, uh, to teach her the pipes every day. He lived with them for a year in order to bring her up to the standard to win the piping competition. Um, so really unique. She was a, a fantastic dancer, very proficient. She taught dancing. Uh, again, they would have had a huge um, culture, tradition of dancing and, and music in their family. Yeah. Um, she had a, quite a sad life. Um, she lost a number of children. Yeah. Um, but certainly pioneer. Um, and, and, and likewise with Anna Barry. And of course, Mar- Mrs. Margaret Murphy was from Limerick. But what, one question I asked about her is in the book, it says Mrs. J.J. Murphy. So for ages on the research journey, 
I was looking for everything. Nobody knew what her first name was. Yeah. So to have her there as now Mrs. Margaret Murphy, yeah. you know, to really give her her, her Christian name. And to give important. her her credit. That credit. Is, that is long overdue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these weren't just mold breakers. They were like smashing through all the barriers and molds and everything. Absolutely. This amazing woman, Miss May McCarthy. So, um, um, so again from Cork, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, tell us a little bit about May. Yeah, if we look, I suppose after the famine, we have uh, the Home Rule and we have the Gaelic League, and I think that's something that pr- sparked a huge interest in Irish music and culture and piping as well, and of course Irish dance and um, it, culture. Nationalism, nationalism really gave these women a performance platform. And if we look at this photograph, we see the, the dress. Um, and we see the uh, medals, so her prize winnings from that time. And this was something she was incredibly p- proud of. But she was a real pioneer. She never, she never married. She was um, heavily involved in the revolution. Um, she carried dispatches and guns and ammunition uh, around Cork City. Uh, she was a proficient dancer. She was a proficient piper. She played the Ilham pipes. She played the war pipes. Um, and she's documented in O'Neill's as being uh, an exceptional talent, mm. uh, that she could learn three and four very quickly um, but she had an interesting career because she continued teaching she set up a Cayley band and um, she traveled uh, she traveled uh, with the Gaelic League uh, and of course she was a member of Come on the Mon as well um, but she traveled to Wales and performance spaces there large halls um, she was incredibly young at this at this point and she showed no fear Mm-hmm. So she was she was way ahead of her time, mm-hmm. um, and she toured around Ireland as well. And one of the documentation I'm originally from Abbey Field in County Limerick, and one of the diaries uh, that has emerged um, documents her as having played in Abbey Field. Mm-hmm. So that was I was very excited to, to see that. Yeah. Um, but really, a powerful story. Um, and, and upon her death, uh, she's registered, um, or there's a lovely article about her um, and her music uh, in the paper. But l- like that, buried. Yeah, buried. I mean, it's wonderful this work that you're doing, Louise. And I know it throws up a whole lot more questions when you get to these people and you go, why did that just, I mean, you know, in the case of, of, uh, there's there's so much, many layers to to why they, you know, went into oblivion. So like, we're going to cut a long story short, but like, there was a period where, again, women disappeared. And I, I guess in tandem with, you know, um, rules in Ireland that kept women at home and, and not allowed to work. So mm-hmm. it was probably no wonder. And when you mentioned uh, Kitty Hanley, didn't she uh, take up the pipes because she simply had to or something Absolutely, like that? Yeah. But um, so we're going to show one more photograph and then we'll take a tune from Louise and then we'll go on to the prize, which is not a car. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll drop that joke. Um, um, so look, this amazing photograph brings together a couple of things. And Louise, again, we started talking about Paddy Maloney equally. Oh, sorry, we were talking about Tony McMahon, I beg your pardon. Equally, we could talk about um, the significance of the loss of another uh, master, Paddy Maloney. And, and here is, oh, I was going to say, where is he? Come on. <laughs> is he here? <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, so, and next to him is... Uh, Rosam, no, Liam, Liam Rosam, yeah, and uh, and so, but in the middle here is this is uh, Betty Nevin, and Betty Nevin was uh, attended piping classes with the great Leah Rosam in Dublin, um, and they're here in 1951, and they're heading to the first flakiole, All Ireland flakiole in Mullingar in 1951, and there's actually cinefilm footage yeah. of this, uh, which is 
is magical to see um, a very young Paddy Maloney and all these great pipers and fiddle pair and uh, Betty Nevin on the back of a truck. Uh, health and safety, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings me to the, the point, the last point I want to make about the film. And like Louise, um, this, that, I, I'm not, uh, spoiler alert, there's so many wonderful parts, but there's a beautiful section um, where they get to talk, right? And they haven't met each other for a long time. And he, you know, uh, just speaks so eloquently about the contribution that she made and how amazing she was. And then I think the most heartbreaking thing is hearing her talk about how the boys were all... Uh, they, because it was such a special, special occasion, they were all fitted with these wonderful suits and they kind of, she didn't even get a suit. It was kind of, she fell between the cracks. So it was, I thought that was, you know, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And I, I think he was so sympathetic and, and he showed great empathy on the day. Yeah. Um, it really is a moving piece of footage. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. He talks about her so movingly saying, she, you are a gem, you were a gem. Yeah. And, and, and I think you could maybe explain a bit about why she stopped again she got married and, yeah, and, 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 and in she, Ireland that meant something. Absolutely. I think like the, there's many different reasons as to why women stop playing the pipes and each story is a little bit different. But this with, with Betty, she decided time had come to get married and uh, to buy a house and they couldn't afford to keep the pipes and buy the house. So she sold the pipes and, and that, that, that was it. And she hasn't she hadn't played since. So it's quite moving and of course there's Paddy sitting and he's listening to you know her uh, telling this story and he's moved as well I think yeah. you know because they both went on to have different careers and different paths and yeah there's 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 something very meaningful in that mm -hmm. interaction and it's uh, again wonderful that you presided over that and caused it to happen these are the things that you you know like Tony McMahon you try to join the dots and then suddenly it becomes something and I think that their um, reuniting was a very powerful thing so maybe we could play a tune for for him and for her of course um well in honor of the of the great Patty Maloney and um I think this photograph and I think their memories and the fun um that they recall at this particular time. I might play a selection of reels to, uh, she mentioned the lively boys. She mentioned yeah. uh, the fun and carrying on in the hotel. And it's yeah. really like, it, it really puts this photograph into context. And I think that was something, I had seen the photograph, but I always wondered the background story behind it. Mm. And, and you know, what happened? I'm sure mischief happened. Um, mm. But yeah, a really, a really gorgeous photograph. So I'll play a selection of reels. Um, I, I'll tie it in with Leo Rousam, uh, since that he was um, another master piper and a key figure in Irish piping. Um, and of course, this connects it to um, Paddy and uh, Betty Nevin. So three reels. I'll try the humours carry go holds. We'll tie in with the spirit of Claire and the great Tony McMahon. We'll move to Leo Rousam for the middle one, which is apples, uh, winter's apples, uh, which I heard from a recording of Leo Rousam. Um, and I should mention that this photo comes from courtesy of uh, Leo's daughter, Helena, and the recording does too. And I'll finish up with a great tune called The Merry Blacksmith that I'm sure um, Patty and Betty would have played as well.
sure you're awake. <laughs> <laughs> you are now. <laughs> Okay. You're going to stay with us, Louise? Great. Um, okay, I would really like to, it's my great pleasure, in fact, to uh, welcome my second guest of the evening, uh, spoken word boss Natalia O'Flaherty.
Hi, Natalia. Do you want to read or we'll... Uh, yeah, I have something here. Sorry, I forgot I was meant to be doing something. I was enjoying that so oh, much. Oh, great. <laughs> that was so good. Gee, you're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was loving that. I was like, who's on next? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's me. Um, uh, I had a poem that I wanted to do, but I'm, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go off script here, and I'm going to do a poem that's not really a poem, and it's not really my own, so we're all in for a surprise. But it's actually uh, the ballad of Percy O'Reilly from Finnegan's Wake, and it's uh, an homage, I would say, to uh, Ronnie Drew's reading of it. Which is just so fun, and that, I just I'm I'm just so full of energy now. I was a bit uh, anxious, I would say, because I haven't done a gig in what yeah. like coming up on two years. So this is my first one back. So I lease into it by uh, borrowing something from someone else, and I'll get my phone out. But I'm pretty sure I know it. Uh, it's one of them. You're gonna kill me after the fact because it will not leave your head <laughs> once you hear it for the first time. It's just oh, it's such a laugh. So I call it the Humpty Dumpty poem, and you'll see why in a second, but it's called The Ballad of Percy O'Reilly. Have you heard of one Humpty Dumpty, how he fell with a roll and a rumble, and curled up like Lord Oliver Crumble, by the butt of the magazine wall of the magazine wall, hump helmet and all? He was one time our king of the castle, now he's kicked about like a rotten old parsnip. And from Green Street he'll be sent, by order of his worship, to the penal jail of Mount Joy, to the jail of Mount Joy, jail him and joy. He was for father of all things for the botherous, slow coaches and immaculate contraceptives for the populace, mare's milk for the sick, seven dry Sundays a week, open air love and religious reform, religious reform, hideous in form. Otherwise says you couldn't he manage it, I'll go bail my fine dairy man darling. Like the bump and bull of the Cassidy's, all his butter is in his horns, all his butter is in his horns, butter is horns. Sweet, sweet bad luck washed to waves of our island, the hooker at a hammerfest Viking, and God's course on the day when a blana bay saw his black and tan man of war, black and tan man of war on the harbour bar. Oh, we'll have free trade gales banned and mass meeting, for to sod that brave son of Scandinavia. And we'll bury them down in Oxman's town, along with the Divil and Danes, the Divil and Danes, and all their remains. And not all the king's men nor his horses will resurrect his corpus, for there's no true spell in Connacht nor hell that's able to raise a cane. And that's some of the ballad of Percy O'Reilly. It's good, isn't it? Oh, great. It's yeah. Um. It's, it's funny, um, thanks so much for bringing that in. That's just what the doctor ordered. You knew what to do. Um, so it's funny about looking at the picture of Kitty early, right? Um, because Kitty was 16. Oh, it's gone now. But I, I saw, the first time I saw you reading, uh, Natalia, was in the DPO of all places in 2018. And it was a modern reconstruction. And I didn't know anything about you. or um, I had seen Emmett Kerwin before. I didn't know Mango, loads of people. But like you absolutely nailed it that night. And, uh, and I just read today, you were 17 years old when you stormed the GPO. So <laughs> the thing is, right, um, like how did you discover how to perform? How did that happen? I still don't think I know how to perform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things where you never, you never get used to. I was talking to Ronan and Miles earlier, and he was saying, um, not to give him away now, but he said we were just long. Long story short, Ronan said that basically walk walking a tightrope was as similar to doing a gig for himself, and it was that nerve wracking and mm. needed that much focus and concentration. Whereas for me, it's never been any way but the complete opposite. Yeah. So when 
when you say, where did you learn how to perform? I don't think I did. Obviously, I've gotten better and I've gotten more comfortable in my skin over the yeah. years, but it's just like, I, don't, I couldn't explain it. It's like doing anything that you just know how to do. I can't explain how I ever done it. Obviously, you practice and you, you go over your lines and you learn your poems and that kind of thing. But just from the go, I've never felt more... Not right now, I'm bitching myself, but more generally, <laughs> I've never felt in usual times, pre-pandemic, yeah. I've never felt more yeah. myself than yeah. when I'm talking into a microphone. Vain, I, think, you know? I think all I have to say about that is lucky us that you feel <laughs> that way. But just, you know, I, I'm just, because I guess why, the reason I asked the question is, I'm glad I asked it, but the reason I asked the question was like, how much time did you have to work up to that? You know, as in, it seems like unbelievable but so just talk to me about like finding your voice then on stage and being comfortable in that place so we'll say in the number of years that you have been um doing spoken word performance um how big has that of an impact has that made on the writing process see that's the thing i've never been able to write i i know now after so many years before when that people are going to hear what I'm gonna write, do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not private anymore. It's always, which isn't doesn't mean I'm, I'm changing what I'm saying or anything. But I'm very conscious of the fact that I have an audience or might have an audience for a particular piece or that kind of thing. Um, so it makes it a bit, it makes you feel really seen and like, I don't know, not vulnerable in a way because I do, I do write like, kind of innermost thoughts and feelings and some really personal stuff the odd time now. But um, it does make you second guess do I want to say that will that reveal more than I wanted to yeah. but for the most part it's just kind of made me more comfortable in my own writing style which would be to follow the rhyme and to follow the words rather than the bigger picture and that yeah. kind of stuff and obviously when I do my own stuff in a while it's never I don't know what I'm going to say until I say it until I write it I should say and yeah. then I say it on stage yeah. but um the whole thing of performing influence in the writing it's kind of been symbiotic it's been a nice yeah. thing it hasn't put me off or put me on or anything it's yeah. just it's working well um, it's funny about you said about the rhyme thing because when I hear your work I really feel like it's it's extremely musical and and rhythmic in that sense and also it doesn't surprise me how much rap music would have been or at least I read that um, but maybe you could talk about that as in would that be a big influence or or how big an influence was that? Yeah, so I'm told all the time by people who just heard me for the first time and people who are always at my gigs that, oh, you should rap. And I just kind of laugh because I'm like, can you fucking imagine? I just cringe. I just cringe. Um, I think there's a certain uh, attitude with rap that I really love and admire. And a lot of my friends are embody that attitude and thing wholly. And it's really fun to watch. But it's just a step too far for me. But it definitely is like... The whole, the inspiration is there and it's borrowed and it's taken from and it's given back all the time between, like um, the majority of my gigs, it's weird because it's half cut between rap gigs and Irish traditional music gigs would, would, would be where I fit in. And if you think about that, doesn't make any fucking sense. But it's still, I'm here, I'm here, yeah. I'm bridging the gap. So <laughs> if you have the next app, act up as actually a grime artist no I'm joking um, <laughs> but wouldn't that be so weird and that's the thing is that it's because there's no music to it and because there's no um I haven't put that style of whichever behind yeah. me I can 
hop off here and go down to the button factory and hop on stage and do probably the same thing. It's the context, I suppose, that's yeah, different. Right. Yeah. But the words are all the same. Yeah. I get away with it. <laughs> Great. Brilliant. Speaking of getting away with it, would you mind um, not getting away with it and reading something? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't know where that was going. Get off the stage. That's enough. <laughs> um, Nothing to do with throwing Yeah. Before. So in, in the spirit of being uh, back, <laughs> I suppose, or as, as back as we can be right now, and with the news and nightclubs and stuff opening, or maybe opening or not opening, you know yourself. Um, the first poem that came into my head was a poem I wrote about the night me and my now boyfriend uh, got together. It's a bit of a love poem, but it's kind of, it's funnier than that, so don't worry, like, don't be crying. It'd be grand, so I'm going to stand up for this one because I feel a bit better. But it's called Untitled. Uh, it's like a metaphor, um, because we weren't officially dating. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's not, <laughs> not funny. <laughs> um, didn't land. Anyway, so this is called Untitled, and it's from my lovely boyfriend, Tag. Your hands moved soft and sleek and out of time. You take my hand in yours, so now your rhythm becomes mine. No rhyme or reason really, but it's easy to sway to hefty hip-hop beats when your feet are floating. Inches off the ground, the sound of grime fades to white noise. The boys have their tops off and they wreck on my shoes, crystal clean and white. Before the scene of sweaty, stuffy, sticky shite, still you're kitted out in stripes. Horizontal, I think, but it's hazy. We leave with no goodbyes right before it gets too crazy. Lazy lips linger longer on mine than they would if it were, as we say, casual. But we go about the night non-committal as per usual, as understood. There's no need for getting real because what we have is good, or good enough. The wind is rough, but your hand is soft in mine. I squeeze a heart three times, a secret silent sign of something I'm still too sober to say. That's a story for another day. Beats still ringing in our ears as we race up bridges stairs thinking fucker like who cares as we make a holy show making moves across the city to the only place we know that does gargle after hours it's the Indian and Temple Bar if you're wondering thanks very much <laughs> um, so like in terms of, of tuning into the sounds of words and things like that on, on Dublin streets, so look, you're bridging these worlds and you're traveling on Dublin bus and you're listening all the time. Are you taking notes? What's happening? Are you uh, <laughs> voice messages? Yeah, if, if anyone saw my notes up, I'd probably be sectioned. It's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's just, if someone says something and it sounds nice, if it sounds, if it doesn't, disrupt my brain and it just fits into my flow of thought or if I kind of if I kind of go hmm I'll write it down into my notes up so there's mad things just people's conversation I'm very nosy I love other people's business I love other people's <laughs> business so much um, careful she's a poet yeah <laughs> uh, I'll be out in the smoking area later just having a listen <laughs> don't mind me but um, no seriously it's so interesting just to see what other people are talking about or thinking about or how they talk or how they talk especially the word someone says a word and it's just it's just, it's something I wouldn't say. Like, I love kind of like, um, like traditional, like even when you said creator and I was like, I have to write that down. I'm just, ri I'm just ripping people off all the time, but it's so interesting the way people speak. And um, if I hear someone say something, like someone said on the bus and it was the most mundane conversation, but then they said, I just get these animalistic orges. And they were talking about like betting or something or going to betting shop. And I was like... Something innocent. And I was like hang on like, that's really good I was like anything if you've ever heard me say a line and you're like oh that was good I probably didn't say it in divorce <laughs> it probably wasn't me but yeah I just think it's so interesting the way people talk and what 
what sparks from me, what sparks in me from them saying something so random and yeah. out of context and probably never see them again and they didn't even know I was listening. And like what better place to be than, than Dublin? Oh, yeah. And, and then in general, Ireland. I mean, like our, our main goal in life um, is to fuck up the English language. <laughs> Well, look okay, at his other stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but we're very good at that, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, um, but so, so just tuning into the sounds and then like when it comes to speaking and, and that space that you go to when you're performing, um, I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to be able to kind of make shapes of that into your own. Yeah, I get told all the time by people who know me well that I sound uh, different when I perform than when I speak. You can probably hear it yourselves just now as I'm talking. But um, it's, I can't explain in any other words, except when I write a poem, I'm writing it in my head, but I'm saying it in my head. So as I speak and as I say the words, that's my raw, unedited, completely natural inside thinking voice, stream of consciousness kind of thing. And some words just don't rhyme if you don't say it like that. It's difficult, like it's hard to say. Like I had an awful fight with my friend one time because I said impotence instead of impotence to a random word, weird example, but still it was the word I used. And I was, he was like, it's not pronounced like that. And I was like, well, it is now. Like, even if you look at the, the poem, the first poem I done, every word in that is pronounced some kind of mad way, like right. for the sake of fitting the rhyme and to fit the words. Yeah. So like the whole thing of bending it. And I say it's like creative license or poetic license. It's not. I just don't know how to speak properly <laughs> and correctly. And if it rhymes in my head as I forced seen or read or heard the word being said, that's why a lot of the words would be kind of ticker Dublin accents or inner city accents because I probably heard someone say it like that. Yeah. That's how it's lodged in my brain. And that's the only way I can make it rhyme. So I just have to, you just go with it. If you know what I mean, you yeah. know what I mean. It's, like, I know what you mean and it's music to our ears. So could you maybe read something? Yeah, yeah. I have. Um, so like I said, I haven't done a, a gig in a long time and I usually do everything off by heart, but I thought that'd be a bit <laughs> risky. Um, so I'm going to do... Uh, I'm going to do two poems in one, and they're both, again, weirdly love poems. If I ever was to talk about, if I talked to someone about my poetry for the first time, they'd be like, oh, what do you write, like, like nature poems? And I'd be like, no, love poems. No, hardly. And now I've just done three in a row, so forgive me. Uh, I'm cooler than this. This is called, um, these two, the first one, you'll, you'll know yourself when they change, but I'll just do them as one because I think they're nice. The first one is called True Love in a Taxi, and this is another example of just being... <laughs> a nosy bitch um, because well it wasn't even he gave this this is all him you'll see in the poem and the second one is called fire and it's about um a nice quiet moment i had at a festival one time so force one a taxi man once told me his favorite piece of poetry as we drove home one drunk one dutiful my wife he said is so beautiful I love her and want for her the world in my palm. I agreed it was a pretty piece of verse, but he laughed. It wasn't something he'd rehearsed, instead had revealed. He clears his throat. I feel the car slow and the air itself breathes deeper, ready in for rhyme like passenger and preacher. If I do not love you, I shall not love. If you do not love me, I shall not be loved. The words left him like a prayer, a wish more than request. 
but our Bacchusian bond is broken when he asks for my address. Flames flit up and over tired eyes, follow flying embers soon snuffed by frigid skies. Eyes sting in their stares but still don't close. Flush face, dripping nose, warmed and reddened by fire's heat. Higher up the field a beat vibrates beneath as a band begins their tune. Flames too far for fingers now guided by the moon. No wrongs or rights, just smells and sights and the soft song of his breath. If such a place is heaven, then I will marry debt. Thank you. Wonderful, Natalia. I um I want to ask you about something that you, I again read. But the so you're in trans for the benefit of all the transition year students in the audience. Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> for you were in transition year, and it was kind of a thing that you were doing. A, is it a drama or a video yeah, or something? Yeah, I was doing. I was doing. Um, Tenderfoot. It's called Tenderfoot in the Civic Theatre. It's like a theatre arts programme for transition year students. And you come and you write or direct or produce or stage yeah. your own plays written between yourselves. It's really cool. Yeah. And, and how did it happen that you ended up writing this long poem? Because that was the turning point, right? Um, I didn't know how to write a play. <laughs> I went to a playwriting course and I didn't know how to write a play. So I wrote a really, really long poem and said, here's my play and surprisingly got away with it they loved it and they were like yeah that's a play I was like brilliant so now I know anything can be a play if it's long enough and <laughs> it was the first long form intentional piece of writing that I'd done for an audience and for performance and for it was basically the first of what I do now and it was called her 18th birthday it was really sad and kind of tragic especially for a 16 year old but um it was the first place, not the first place, but it was the place, the pivotal place for me that I remember um, being not praised, but acknowledged and supported in writing, in the way I write and in the, the tone and voice and type that I write and all these kind of things. Because I don't write traditionally. If you looked at my notebooks, it wouldn't make any sense. There's no stanzas or reverse. Um, I haven't structured anything since my leave insert. It's just, it's nonsense if you don't, if, it, if you're not me, basically. So when I went there and tried, chance my arm at writing something like this for a course, for a whole thing, um, I was really worried that I was going to be kind of rejected or, or challenged or made change. And it wasn't. It was completely um, accepted and uplifted and yeah. really celebrated. Because that, that endorsement, I think you yeah. used that word somewhere, is that like that endorsement is so key to your development and to your yeah. ability to keep going or to even start as you were at the beginning. Yeah. Because like for you, right, and it's worth saying, like the conventional, the formal education side uh, just didn't work. And for somebody, you know. Yeah, like people, like I get younger, if I, I do workshops in schools the odd time and all this kind of stuff and they'd be doing their leaving cert or sometimes in their junior cert, depending on the age, and they'd be like, oh, what do you think of, insert, leaving cert curriculum? I can't, I'm actually, that's, I won't say that. Anyways, I won't, I won't name names, but they'd say, what do you think of your man or your one or this person? And I'd be like, I don't think about him anymore because I'm not being graded on it. And that was a big thing for me was being, 
told that there was a way to, not, not one of many ways, but there was their way to write a poem and there was their way to read a poem. And it never sat right with me. And I went and done English in college and all for a year. And I was like, this is more of the same. I don't mm. agree or don't want to be led in this kind of way. So it was difficult for me to kind of reconcile poetry with spoken word because they're the same thing. Yeah. They are the same thing. And it's just a one form or the other. But when you hear poetry, even now as a young person, especially, you hear poetry, you think leave and search, you think exam, you think questions. Answers. Dead people. De- dead people. They're, they're all dead. They're not all dead, but they all <laughs> but might that, as well you know, be. I mean, okay, uh, no it's a different generation, it's but going back, that, that was it's, definitely all dead. It's, it's just... Uh, they're just... <laughs> honestly... See now, I, I see. I'm, I'm not going to go too far into this because actually, let's go all the way. I'm oh. I'm actually uh, on the junior cert curriculum as of next year. Wow. I think. Yeah. Wow. wow. Go on. <laughs> so, and I'm and clearly I'm not dead. So it's, it's changing. It is changing, and it is getting better. But definitely, and there were some great young-ish kind of new age modernist kind of poets on my leave and cert curriculum. But I just had no interest, and if you, especially if you even have a teacher that has no interest, it, you're done. You're done for. Like you know yeah. what I mean. I never told my English teacher that I'd, I was after being in the GPO and national college, all these mad places. Shredding the GPO. Yeah, and I never told my English teacher who you would think would be dying to know. She wasn't. Didn't care, which is fine. Yeah. Different interests. Yeah. But um, I just uh, not English. Couldn't just yeah. <laughs> just couldn't reconcile the two together so that's like yeah. when I go into schools and I do a workshop or I do poetry or perform poetry I always say like it does like the first thing I say and most kids kind of know the answer now so it kind of takes away my whole thing but I'll be like what is a poem and then one kid was like whatever you want it to be and I was like that's my whole fucking workshop <laughs> <laughs> god, god damn the swanee I don't know what I'm gonna talk about but they are they are catching on and there's definitely a, oh. there's definitely a difference between yeah conventional or learned or studied poetry in school and what I do clearly it's, yeah. it's a, an apparent but, difference but this idea of we'll say you back in that space yeah. and and the you now coming in to speak to you then that's the kind of thing we're yeah, talking exactly. about right that's yeah. what we need um Natalia would you mind doing one more um and then we'll go back to Louise and then we'll come back later oh, and absolutely we'll back so I'll do, I'll do a little uh, no, I'm loving this this is great it's great uh, <laughs> really enjoying um, let's check out there everybody else loving this So I'm going to do um, a classic of mine, which isn't even a classic. It's just my style, which is giving out and whinging and moaning about the state of affairs. And believe it or not, the relevancy of this is complete and total now. But I wrote this two years ago in Dingle after I'd gotten away from Dublin for a while. And I was like, Dublin, shy. It's really bad. and It's only getting worse and all this. And that was two years ago. And there's some references in it. Like I say, I mentioned the Grafton Quarter. Do you remember that whole shebang? And they were like trying to, whatever. That's that's how old this is. Um, But it's still relevant. But um, I really like this poem. It's a bit long, so I'll I'll do this one now and not get it out of the way, but let you hear it. I might stand up a little bit. But um, yeah, so this is called Dublin Disorder. And like I said, I wrote it two years ago and nothing's fucking changed. Um, Here we go. When our city is in disarray, it's easier than not to say that Dublin is dying. To say that Dublin is dead. 
And Dublin, while I love you, I just haven't got the head and I haven't got the funds to get out of the red and I haven't got the time to be wasting. Placating dodgy dealers only throw me a lifeline if I sign on just till better times. The crimes against culture are criminal and the effort to shift our focus aren't even fucking subliminal. They're lit up an LED for all to see, a big fuck off, fuck you in the form of welcome to Grafton Quarter. The people are sick. We've got Dublin disorder. Dublin, you're disordered, bordered on destruction. We drummed through all your hoops and we followed your instructions till your club scene is closing, your homeless are frozen and your only solution is fucking bulldozing. Reality bites harder than the tongue of those scorned, worn by heads of high culture and low, arts and funding in hand and hand go. Dip your toe into activism and be met with division of culture and commerce. First as champions of our old city falling flat in the tangles of tedious bureaucracy. Democracy only works if people are listened to. No change is gained from marching in streets, skating tweets, or singing along to the next song in your hedge-funded, homogenous hotel late bar. So when your city is in disarray, it's easier than not to say that Dublin is dying. To say that Dublin, you're dead. The click-clack of Dublin nightlife rings out like mass bells in empty streets. Because these cold cobbles are catching fewer high-heeled feet. And the brown town loafers have been replaced by runners. Running from venue to venue before the vultures venture capital catapults them to the north side. Followed closely by retort snide comments about their new locality. The reality is that Dublin you're disordered, bordered on destruction, obstructing hopes to construct hotels. Never mind the culture cause it's the drink that sells. Charred cards tapped on their torty and overcharged for a drink. What else would you do in towns on the brink? The city bleeds with every chop and change, but the bear market floods with every exchange, every drop of drink sold and we're told that we need it, we buy drink and breed it. And when the last orders come, we file out and repeat it. You're wondering why your nightlife is closing when instead of investing your fucking bulldozing, there's no money for artists so the art won't be made. You get nothing for nothing. We deserve to be paid. Thank you. Well, listen to the new power generation, Natalia Flaherty. Um, actually, Natalia, just, just on that point, right, seeing as... Um, um, you said it all right there, right? So this bullshit, right? So the cobblestone and merchant's arch, this latest wave of stuff, right? So a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to get back in to see here the night uh, Larry was stretched, the night before Larry was stretched. I always get that wrong. So I'm sitting in a room in the cobblestone, in their music room, and I'm listening to all these people. I'm on my own because I'm getting up early the next morning. I'm sitting in the corner. I'm listening to all these people, and I'm feeling this thing about what's been missing and what's important and what's happening and where it's at and then two days later I read this bullshit about Marin Estates and their stupid fucking plan about their stupid fucking hotel on top of this incredible place it's like what the fuck is going on this is not live on RT so uh, (laughs) fuck that shit Exactly. Uh, on that bombshell, uh, one more, uh, another tune from Louise. So we're going to have a break in a short amount of time, but I'm um, sorry, oh God, I never curse on air. enjoying that I'm having a gorgeous night so thanks so much um, there's so much <laughs> this is real yeah 
And that's the wonderful thing about uh, the spoken voice, uh, poetry, music, song, dance. It unifies people um, and it brings out emotions that are very deep sometimes. Um, and I think that's a powerful thing. And as a community and as a traditional music community uh, and as an arts and culture community, that's something we, that's really important. Um, I think to celebrate that here tonight is really special. So I'll play um, a couple of tunes. Um, I'll play a jig called uh, Up and About in the Morning, uh, thinking of all those early mornings um, uh, in honour of all those places that are going to be opening again. Hopefully we'll be ho coming home uh, late in the morning hours with the birds singing again. Um, and I'll see what I go into after that. So, woo! <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, she never, ever, ever fails to bring the heat. Louise Mulcahy. Um, Louise, um, just when, when in terms of the actual playing of the instrument, right? So, you know, my own immersion into the sound, I think I've told you about this, was, was a random one where I had never, I had heard the pipes and, and never felt the pipes. And then somebody came to the house with a set of pipes and played them. And that's the night everything changed. But like in terms of the physical act of playing, right? So maybe you could just take, seeing as we've never had an Illin Piper on Make Me an Island before, maybe you could just give us a quick uh, introduction into what, the hell is going on there? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, over the years, I've had so many, um, obviously before COVID, so many trips and so many um, memories that stand out in my mind. But one memory that stands out was at the Ho Chi Minh Conservatory of Music. Um, and after the concert, uh, this gentleman beckoned uh, to come over to talk to him. So I Left the, left the seat, went over, and the gentleman said, that, uh, what we managed to piece together afterwards is, um, I, I really love the sound of the Ellen Pipes, but you look like you're playing an octopus. <laughs> so I think it's really, it looks more difficult than it is. And yeah. I think really there's a couple of things going on. Um, and I think with the pipes, you can learn them stage by stage. So often people see a full set and panic. Panic mode sets in. How do you do that? But it's a bit like you can learn anything in stages um, and, and no matter what it is. So with the set of, set of pipes, you'd start off with the, um, the, the bag, the bellows and the chanter. And you'd learn that first. Um, and then afterwards, you'd uh, proceed to the drones. And there's three drones. Um, and each one is an octave lower than the other. And after that, you'd add on the regulator. So you saw my wrist going uh, at different stages there. And that just provides a, a chordal accompaniment uh, to the tune. You'd learn that after. So again, you layer up and you build up. Uh, but these are a very special set of pipes. They were owned um, by the master piper, Lee Mufflin. And I'm very indebted and grateful to Lee Mufflin and to the um, Napibrielin for giving me these pipes. And as you can imagine, uh, a very moving experience dropping on such an instrument that has such an incredible legacy and owned by such a master piper. Um, but I think with the pipe, with these set of pipes, um, there's such a, 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 a magical tone from them, really. And these are a flat set of pipes. So there's two different types of pipes you can get. You can get a concert pitch set, uh, which is in the key of D. Um, so like your, your tin whistle key. And then these are a flat set. So they're lower, more mellow, um, and a little bit more depth in them. Um, but there's reeds and in the pipes. So they're the heart of the instrument. And without the reeds, you really, you, you'll have... A, you'll have the instrument, but you won't be able to play. So really, pipers talk about the, the instrument being an extension of themselves or like a person. Um, and I, we chatted recently about this, Dola, but when you meet a piper, another piper, the first question they'll ask you is, how are you? And then the next question is, how are the pipes? <laughs> it, doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't seem to happen with other instruments for some reason. <laughs> for some reason. So maybe there's an acknowledgement there that your relationship... Uh, that you're in a relationship, whether you know it or not, um, yeah. with with the set of pipes. Um, and it's like a person. Uh, some <laughs> days they're going really well and some days they respond to, uh, just like us, and then the yeah. next day um, could be a little bit cranky, you know. It's kind of <laughs> I don't feel very well, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but certainly with the reeds, there's a this is the chanter and this is the melody instrument um, and the cane reed is inside and that just, you'll, you'll use your elbow to push the air through to the bag and then that's sucked through by the cane reed and then that produces the notes. Um, and then, so you have to tune all these. So there's one there and there's three more in the drones and then there's three more in the regulators. So that's seven. Is that clear? Yeah. <laughs> 
is, and about those stages, right? Didn't Seamus Ennis say that they were seven years to learn them, seven years to practicing practice them, and then seven, seven years, years playing? And now we've added on an ev- another seven years to wait for a set of pipes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to but wait there, to get them. And, and you mentioned the Peabody Ill in there, but I think just to follow on from what we were talking about with the film, um, is that what was very clear is that there's been a sea change in terms of how... Um, girls are encouraged to take up the pipes and to the point where I, I think it was uh, said that you know that's almost biased to try to get them to, and, and it's now pretty equal right and I mean that must feel great to see that happening. It's a really exciting time for Illum piping. When I started in the 90s uh, there were very few girls playing um, and often uh, no girl no other girl in the piping class that wasn't a problem that was okay we didn't mind <laughs> we didn't mind that. <laughs> Um, but after, but I can see a huge change, and especially in the last fifteen to twenty years, a lot more women playing. And I'm often asked why, um, and I think some of the reasons we can attribute to that are that there's greater visibility of women playing the instrument. Um, it's more achievable, in so far as you can learn it, rather than it being passed on from generation to generation, you can now get a, a practice set on loan. So you can decide at an affordable cost that sometimes that deterred people from engaging with the instrument as well. Um, so now you can uh, get a practice set on loan. And if you don't like it after 12 months, you know, there's, there's, it, it's, you haven't lost too much. Yeah. Um, and then the quality of the instrument has really improved and they've made modifications, slight modifications to the instrument to suit uh, frames and shapes uh, a little better. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's in safe hands, the future. Uh, the other thing about Nepeebri Yilin is that they have presided over a massive revival in general. So it's not just that the gender balance has finally been addressed, but it's it's really thriving um, it's thriving, in, yeah. Uh, internationally. Internationally. Um, Why Piper, wouldn't it? Like? Yeah, no. <laughs> Ilham Piper's uh, associations and clubs um, sprouting up all over all over the world. Um, and we have an international Ilham Piping Day on the 6th of November. And Nepeebri are coordinating all events all around the world, um, which will be broadcast on their um, Facebook and YouTube page, I think. Um, but certainly people engaging all corners of the earth um, and no limitations or no... Um, people are making reads, they're adapting to the circumstances, uh, they're learning how to look after the instrument, because that's another thing that put, you know, really deterred people from taking them up as well, is how do I maintain this instrument? How do I fix it if something goes wrong? Yeah. And so now when people are doing amazing things in addressing those issues, um, you know, providing maintenance courses and read making courses and pipe making courses and all the tools really to equip you uh, in order to have an excellent relationship with a yeah. set of pipes. <laughs> Everything you need, including the mediation when it breaks down. Yeah. So, uh, Louise, you might think about a final set uh, sure. before we're going to have a halftime break where we'll be um, the commercial break, of course. Um, but I'm going to go back to you, Natalia, um, for a couple of more uh, pieces. Um, maybe you could read one, and uh, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so I have, I have two left that I plan to do. Great. Um, and I'll do the funny one first and the sad one last, because what else would you be doing? Uh, this one is about... Um, I've just bars on the brain, to be honest now. I'm just dying to go out and have a nice dance with my friends. And this one is, an, it's again, it's an older poem. I've been kind of really uh, stagnated, I would say, in my writing because, like we talked about, I get my material mostly from interaction and socialization and all that. And obviously we haven't been doing that for a while. So I'm doing um, old ones, but enjoyable ones. So I won't, name, I won't name the name of the bar, but you'll know it anyways if you've ever been there. It's called... Um, 
I used to think this smoking area was the coolest place in Dublin. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. Here we go. I used to think this smoking area was the coolest place in Dublin. Doubling up as a meeting place and an eating place with the okayest burgers in the city. It's a pity that I spent too much time here. It's a pity that I spend so much time here. It's a shame all the individuals are so the same, but it's nice that they don't know it. I don't know what's changed. The barrels and stools get grouped and rearranged and every Wednesday I'd have to stand there neither. It's either here or somewhere better, but it's always here and never somewhere better. It's weird that the apartments get to see us. They rise up above real snug, their livers living too close together, stashed away from ashes and mashing bodies. Shoddy smoking area seats squeak beneath two big bums and phone screens creak beneath two big tums. Texting exes after too many points. Points being made about which Tarantino film is the best, even though, even though they've only seen that one and the new one and Wikipedia the rest. Restless legs lean from one foot to the other while the suffocating smoke smothers those who don't partake. But I still take part in the fake and big trousered little shorts girls. We're chunky, sorry. Big trousered little short girls with chunky shoes choose which big glasses little hot boy to schmooze, then smooch, kissing currency, swapping spit and sharing straights and robbing rollies on the sly. The fold-out roof keeps out the cold and the sky. Fake poor northsiders and real poor southsiders switch stories to fit whatever narrative is hip and happening on the night. Whatever personality feels right is probably wrong. But they keep up appearances and listen to the same five Smith songs on repeat. Like the same five nights a week that I spent here. Like they've spent here. How long have I spent here? How much have I spent here? <laughs> the doors on the walls don't go anywhere. But if they did, they'd all still be shut. Putting too many options in front, in front of fledgling up all nighters will frighten us. So we stick to what we know and we go where we know and we stay where we know and it's comfortable. And it'll do. And maybe once in a while, we might even try somewhere new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank God, she's alive. Do you, uh, do, there's a poem, actually, sorry, there's a poem. There's a poem by Motorhead. Um, there's a song by Motorhead called Killed by Death. You're really fucked if you're killed by death. <laughs> um, the, the, just before things changed, um, Natalia, you had your own show here, right? And, and, and that show really was like a big step. Mm. And again, it was a beginning of something, but unfortunately it was just the beginning. But I, I guess my point being what you go back to is there's so many opportunities for you to put those. Did you enjoy that? And is that where you're going to pick up? Yeah, so like, like I said, I was completely stagnated in my writing and that doesn't mean I wasn't writing, it just means I wasn't writing anything very good. Um, but it was it really, really kind of awkward. I wouldn't even say difficult or challenging. It was an awkward time the last year and a bit um, in terms of writing. But I found so much kind of... Uh, like listening to a poem like that for me or saying a poem like that, I should say, as I'm saying it, the images are flashing into my head. I can see what I'm talking about. I can see the people I'm referencing. And I kind of feel a little bit of what it would have felt like to be there at the moment. So I was kind of clutching onto these poems about all my nights out and times with friends and all this fun stuff as like a little taster of what, what it was and what I was missing. Um, so when I go back and do poems like that, and they're, they're so fun to do because I know that you know what I'm talking about and I know that it's like an in-joke, but it's not. Um, things like that are just so, it, like it's personal to me. It is, it's a personal, it's my own personal 
opinion, but it's universal. And small little things like that are so helpful and so kind of balancing or steadying, I would say, in, in my writing, because even if one person is like, oh, I really, I knew what you mean, I'd be like, oh, deadly. I wasn't completely isolated in that thought. But when a room of people are laughing at what you're saying or enjoying what you're saying or even just nodding along, that feels like, it feels nice to be part of something again. That's my point of things. And I can't wait to be able to write about these times now as well as continuing to talk about the old ones that we had. Beautiful. Will you write me and Louise? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's in the works. No pressure. Um, uh, Natalia, it's um, so great to hear you say that because the future is so bright. So maybe one more time for Natalia O'Flaherty. So, um, yeah, one more. One more poem. <laughs> God, I hate when that happens because I usually only have a few ready and then like, it's not like a band. I can't do the same one again. Um, <laughs> Anyways, here's, uh, here's the poem called... No, I was going to make a joke, can't remember, it doesn't matter. It's over. Um, this one is... A, it's a sad one, but it's a nice one, I hope. Um, and whenever I write poems, I write them to process things and to deal with things and to kind of uh, sift through the shit that would have come before or during that time. So uh, this is a poem called Famous Last Words. It's a, little, it's a little bit sad. It's a lot bit sad. It's a sad poem, I won't lie. Um, I don't know why I'm trying to sugarcoat it. It's a sad poem. Uh, it's called Famous Last Words. Like, come on, I'm not, I'm not kidding anybody. But it's a really um, frustrating poem for me to write. It was hard for me to write and accept because the whole point of it, as you'll see when I read the poem, is that I lost a loved one and, you know, you have this whole thing of, like, famous last words and what this last famous writer said before they died and some of them are really funny and clever and insightful. And I just couldn't remember what the last thing this loved one had said to me was. And I was like, and it was selfish in a way, because I was like, fuck, like if it was something really clever and insightful, I could have wrote a poem about it, which is fucked up. But it was true. It was how I was thinking. I was like, they didn't give me anything to hold on to. And it really frustrated me. So this was the poem I wrote instead of a poem about their last words. And it's called Famous Last Words. And... Um, this is me saying goodbye and thank you as well because I hopefully won't have to talk after this because my mouth's really dry. But yeah, thanks <laughs> uh, for having me and thanks Donald and Louise. I'm really enjoying myself. It's great to be back. But uh, yeah, famous last words. Yours were probably seize or buy, but I can't remember. And every time I try, I feel a knot, a tightness, a feeling that has no likeness to the words we've said before. You'd expect that there'd be something more, something worth saving. But that morning was normal and our worlds were far from cave. And if I knew then what I know now, I'd have left my bed and told you how dear you are to me and mine if only I'd known it at the time. I'd pin up a piece of paper with your departing dialect or smoothly rearranged awards left by you in your parting gift. But no, no, I've nothing to work with. I've nothing to save or change or rearrange to make unstrange or leaving. I've nowhere to redirect this feeling of regret. Nowhere to say what was left unsaid. Like how much I love you or how deeply I miss you. But I didn't until I did. And now all I can do is write the words that never left my lips and hope that you hear. And pray that you're here somewhere listening, maybe, but never speaking again. Your famous last words of goodbye.
Hope to see you soon. Thank you. Natalia Alfati. Thank you, Paul. Um, Louise, um, so this is almost at the uh, end of the first half of the show, and we'll be back after the extended commercial break of 15 minutes uh, duration uh, with the second half, which will feature a live set um, by Ronan Osnodig and Miles O'Reilly. Uh, but Louise, you're going to play out the first half. What are you going to play? I will. Um, and following with the emotion um, of the last piece, um, I'm going to play a slow air. Um, it's called Bando Vaglana, or The Dark Woman of the Glen. Um, it's a love song. Um, and was recorded by many iconic people. And of course, we remember Tony and Paddy and lots of other musicians that we've lost uh, throughout the last while. Um, and then I finished with a tune called The Boys of the Lock, uh, fitting for the two iconic uh, masters um, of the tradition, uh, Paddy and Tony, who were so full of life, vivacious characters, and uh, always great fun. Um, between from the two of them so we, we remember that aspect of their or that side of their character as well and of course thanks so much to Donald and Natalia it's so lovely to share a stage with you and thanks to all of you it's so lovely to see you again um, and hopefully our paths across again Louise Mulcahy
well. Louise Mulcahy, Natalia O'Flaherty. I feel a little bit like a kid on a late, late toy show. Uh, join us for a part two.